3: Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Land war looms in Gaza as the EU calls for humanitarian corridors. Israel says a late-night raid into Gaza was preparation for the next stage of combat against Hamas. The war of words also continues.
1: The brutal ISIS-like monsters abducted over 220 hostages from Israel. 7,000 Palestinians have been killed by Israel in the last almost three weeks
3: massive manhunt is underway in the united states for an armed suspect who remains at large after a mass shooting in maine in which 18 people died gun attack is the worst since 2019 we'll have the latest live from the states later we discuss ireland's dirty water and as the clocks change we debate if it's time to ditch winter time for good First tonight, the suspect in America's deadliest mass shooting in four years is still on the run and police in the state of Maine say he's armed and dangerous. They confirmed 18 people are dead and 13 injured after the lone gunman went on a shooting rampage at a bar and at a bowling alley. Well, let's get an update on that major story now. I'm joined from Washington by news correspondent Caroline Malone. And Caroline, is there any clear motive for this gun attack?
4: At the moment there isn't because of course this suspect is still at large 24 hours nearly after this incident happened. Although we are getting uh, some information about who this person might be. It seems that he was—he uh, is an Army reservist, um, that he had some mental health problems and that's information that's coming from numerous angles that we're hearing reports. He may have had mental health problems. But clearly he's still been able to get access to guns and it seems carried out one of the most deadly um, gun attacks in recent history in the US.
3: And Caroline, what can you tell us about the manhunt now? Because as you say, the suspect uh, remaining on the run tonight.
4: Absolutely. This is a huge manhunt that is ongoing in the state of Maine. It's quite a rural state and particularly rural in the area where these attacks happened. Now, the police have large parts of this region on lockdown, including a college region with lots of students. They've told residents who live in those areas to stay at home, to shelter in place, to absolutely um, not to confront the suspect if they come across him, because he is armed and likely dangerous. And this goes on, in particular, across some of the waterways. In the last few hours, we've been hearing from police that potentially um, there could be some suggestion he could have escaped on a boat. So they're also searching not just the roads and the forest, but the waterways as well.
3: Uh, We mentioned there that, as yet, motives are unclear because he hasn't been caught. But have we any more detail um, about uh, the suspect in question?
4: Yes, absolutely. Well, we are hearing, you know, these reports of mental health problems and also the suggestion that he may have spent time in a mental health institution in recent years. Now, the Pentagon, the Department of Defence, haven't confirmed any of the connection to potentially his time with training with the military. But there is a suggestion as well that there may have been some incident that had to do with his training time there as well. Also reports that he may even have been trained as a firearms instructor. And all of this information, you know, leading to the question, really, how can someone like this get their hands on guns? You know, and unfortunately, in the state of Maine, that is relatively easy because you don't need a permit to open carry a gun. And also someone that might have, uh, you know, mental health problems, it doesn't necessarily stop them from getting a gun because they only have something called yellow flag laws, which then means the police can confront people with guns, but can't necessarily take them away from them. Okay,
3: Caroline Malone joining us with the very latest from the US tonight. Thank you for that. Now... Israel has said that its raid into Gaza overnight was preparation for the next stage of combat as it repeated its vow to crush the Hamas militant group. The health ministry in Gaza says more than 7,000 people have been killed there since Israel unleashed airstrikes. More than 1,400 people were killed in the initial Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th, with more than 200 hostages taken. The war of words between both sides is also continuing.
1: The brutal ISIS-like monsters abducted over 220 hostages from Israel and dozens of other countries, including babies, babies, children, persons with disabilities, the elderly and Holocaust survivors. Kfir Bibas, Kfir Bibas is nine months old, nine months old and he is being held right now in Gaza as a hostage, nine months old. What what barbaric terrorists can do such a thing? 7,000 Palestinians have been killed by Israel in the last almost three weeks. 70% of all those killed are women and children. Almost all killed are civilians. Is this the war some of you are defending? Let me repeat, is this the war that some of you are defending?
3: EU leaders have been discussing the conflict in Brussels and have called for humanitarian corridors and pauses in Gaza. Well, a short time ago, I spoke to Europe correspondent Rosie Burchard, who is in Brussels for us, about that big development on an agreed wording around the conflict.
2: Absolutely, well, of course, we've seen over the last couple of weeks since those deadly terror attacks, there was a sort of cacophony of different EU officials saying different things. And the EU has gone some way to try and quieten that cacophony since then by first agreeing a joint statement in which they condemned those attacks by Hamas and said that Israel had the right to self-defence within the limits of international law. But since then, a fresh debate on how exactly to address language around, of course, this dire humanitarian situation unfolding in Gaza. For example, to see how different the, the differences in language. We heard the Taoiseach of Varadkar on the Way into these talks, saying that Ireland would be pushing for a call for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Meanwhile, The Austrian Chancellor, Karl Neuhammer, used the words, he said, any fantasies about ceasefires would only serve to embolden Hamas to continue this terror. Now, there has been a compromise, however, agreed. And I'm going to read some of it to you just now, because let me tell you, every single word of this has been negotiated very carefully. So they have said, these 27 leaders, that the European Council expresses its gravest concern for the deteriorating humanitarian situation in Gaza. And they go on to say they call for a continued rapid safe and unhindered humanitarian access and aid to reach those in need then they say crucially through all necessary measures including humanitarian corridors and pauses for humanitarian needs now This notion of humanitarian pause, humanitarian pauses, humanitarian causes, that was what was being negotiated down to the wire. And, of course, some of that language in there recalling that really dire situation that reminds us that while these leaders are negotiating these words diplomatically behind closed doors, well, of course, the situation in Gaza is getting worse in the wake of those deadly attacks by Hamas a couple of weeks ago.
3: And Rosie, what is the view there of Ireland's position? Um, As you say, a a split in the EU camp, but most countries, you know, hearing more pro-Israel in their viewpoint. Ireland, uh, a bit of an outlier in that regard.
2: Well, listen, the fact that there is debate and disagreement on this was not to be unexpected. That's because there have long been long standing divisions within the European Union among those 27 member states on how they approach relations with Israel and uh, with the Palestinian Authority or how they approach this debate more broadly. Now, what Irish officials say is that their position is entirely based on international humanitarian law. And of course, that any other political debates aside that what they're trying to deal with just now as the European Union is how to respond to this humanitarian situation on the ground in Gaza. But it's fair to say that there are differences of opinion here in the European Union. Leaders now have agreed unanimously a statement. Of course, what we don't know is about this agreed call for a humanitarian pause or humanitarian pause. Is this what that means in practice? Does it mean a pause of an hour so humanitarian aid can get in? Does it mean a pause of one hour every day? Does it mean several days? That's something we don't know. And even more crucially still, what weight will it actually carry? Will Israel care about this statement from the European Union and, of course, Hamas?
3: Rosie Burchard there joining us with the very latest uh, from Brussels on that EU statement. Well, I'm joined in studio by Senator Tim Lombard uh, from Fine Gael, Social Tem- Democrats' TD Jennifer Whitmore, uh, Peter Power from UNICEF Ireland is also with us. He's just back from the Middle East. And we're joined on Skype tonight by Professor Donaco back on Professor of Politics at DCU. Uh, you're all very welcome along to the programme. Uh, Peter, I want to come to you first because the wording in that EU message tonight saying rapid, safe and unhindered access... Uh, to Gaza is now needed with regard to aid, as the UN has been saying that aid is just trickling in. Um, You're with UNICEF, you have workers on the ground there. What are they saying to you about the situation right now?
5: Well, the reports we're hearing back from our workers is that the situation is now grave, uh, that a catastrophic humanitarian disaster is unfolding, uh, that the fuel supplies which which fuel the generators which provide electricity for the hospitals, uh, has practically run out. That means things like incubators uh, will be turned off and the immediate implication, a result of that is that children will die very, very shortly. Uh, And that's just the start of this. Uh, We need water for uh, generators. We need water for water treatment plants pumping uh, plants, water is an enormous concern for UNICEF now, Uh, food is at a a very, very low level. And when I was there a few weeks ago, the one striking thing, Claire, was that uh, the the Gaza is so incredibly dependent on uh, food, water, and all other supplies coming in on a daily basis, as we've heard, that has stopped now for 14 days. And the inevitable consequence of that is a, a humanitarian disaster. People do not have food to eat or water to drink.
3: Uh, people will be appalled to hear that UN agencies are actually having to wind down their operations. Is that what UNICEF is having to do because of this fuel shortage?
5: Yeah, well, we, we have a substantial presence inside, but the, the biggest presence obviously is by UNRWA, and uh, UNRWA was very clear today uh, that without fuel, Uh, they have to wind down their operations. Uh, We have very substantial amounts of humanitarian aid, as does the WFP, World Food Programme, World Health Organization, UNRWA. We have supplies on the Egyptian side of the border. We absolutely, as a matter of life and death at this stage, we absolutely have to get them in really, really rapidly in a sustained way over a a significant period of time. Our people will die, and children will die, and that is unconscionable.
3: You're saying already from the aerial photographs, we're seeing the impact of, um, of, of a lack of fuel is beginning to show in that you can see gases getting darker.
5: Yes, Ray, I mean, when I was there, the uh, you know, access to electricity was only limited at the best of times, anyway, uh, but the, critically, electricity is vital for water pumping stations. I was in a desalinization plant, uh, enough to provide clean water for 470,000 people. That's no longer operational. Uh, where, where are the six and 700,000 people who've left northern Gaza, uh, who've moved to southern Gaza now, where are they going to get water, shelter, Sanitation and hygiene is another area of real concern. When so many people are clustered together without access to clean water, a disease disease spreads, spreads very rapidly, especially for children, and that's a major concern.
3: I want to bring Donika back on in. Um, Donica, as I said, the EU have, have issued a statement tonight when they, they're talking about this um, humanitarian corridors and calling for pauses. Do you think that's significant? Do you think it will have an impact on what we're seeing now and the grave need, as Peter has been outlining for aid, to get into the Gaza region?
6: Unfortunately, I think it will have minimal uh, effect. I mean, the EU is deeply divided on this and they have prioritized unity. Uh, So they have prioritized giving a, a message, a simple message, but it's one that I think will make no difference to people on the ground. It's not even coherent. I mean, when you, when you read it, it says that, you know, it, it condemns uh, Hamas's attack on the 7th of October. That's quite clear in the strongest possible terms. There's no similar condemnation of uh, Israel's uh, relent- unrelenting attack uh, on Gaza now for almost three weeks. Um, you know, when you think of the troubles in Northern Ireland, 3,500 dead in 30 years, twice as many have died in Gaza now in the last couple of weeks. And and Benjamin Netanyahu on, on television last night was saying that this is only the beginning. So the EU has, uh, you know, particularly with Germany, Germany, we're told, has historical reasons for supporting Israel, but it's... It seems that the price of assuaging German guilt in this respect is is the lives of people living today in Gaza. There's 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 nothing there in this uh, agreement which will, I think, put pressure on Israel uh, to to respect uh, the, the the needs of people uh, in Gaza who, as Peter Power was pointing out, are are in a dire situation right now.
3: How do you assess Benjamin Netanyahu's speech last night in terms of where Israel planned to go and their intent uh, with this war?
6: It, it was a very uncompromising speech. It was obviously, uh, you know, targeted at uh, an Israeli audience. I mean, this was a government which was divisive before this war, and now he's he's using this opportunity to try and unite people behind him. But the problem is, is that he has framed this problem and this is indeed his consistent record over many years, as as a military one, as one that can be solved by the security measures. When at the heart of this is a political problem, and indeed Benjamin Netanyahu, over over thirty years of a political career, has done much to to make this problem more difficult to solve uh, through through the, the the occupation policies, through the settlements. Uh, which have made the two-state solution almost impossible uh, to imagine. There is a reference in this EU agreement uh, to uh, the two-state solution, but it's, it's talking about reviving the peace process. It's, it's an acknowledgement that nothing has been done really for, for many years, and we've allowed this uh, problem to fester uh, with, with really uh, terrible results.
3: Uh, We've seen one major tank incursion by Israel overnight into the Gaza Strip across the border, but that full-scale invasion, that has yet to materialise. What do you think is the strategy here? Where where are we likely to see this go now?
6: Well, Benjamin Netanyahu last night was was clear that there would be a ground invasion, but he he kept uh, other aspects very close to his chest about the timing of it. Um, There may be, for example, a move... Uh, through Gaza, trying to divide perhaps the north and the south since they've told people to move from the north, maybe prioritizing their military operations there. But as I said, they haven't advertised it. What we do know is that this will be larger, it will be longer, and it will be more lethal than anything we've seen before. And and as I said, the major problem now is is that there's nobody, uh, including the European Union, uh, calling for a ceasefire. Uh, There doesn't seem to be a place for this. At all. I mean, it seems that uh, Israel, because of the, the, the talk of Israel having a right to defend itself, uh, this seems to be giving carte blanche to the Israeli government now to, to proceed with this. And as I said, Benjamin Netanyahu, despite 7,000 deaths in little in, in, in less than three weeks, is saying that he's just beginning.
3: All right, I'd like to bring um, my political panel in here on this. And Tim Lombard, you know, when we hear there about, I suppose, the EU's words potentially holding very little sway in Israel. How frustrating is that for countries like Ireland who have tried to, you know, step in, calling for that full ceasefire and that we're hearing from aid agencies and others is so badly needed
7: now. It's a tragic situation over at the moment. We're looking at a scenario that, look, at up to 7,000 people could be killed on one side... Uh, 1400 on the Israeli side. Like it it, it literally is one of the most tragic and scenes you're ever going to see. I think the Irish government have been an outlier in Europe. They've been calling for really this ceasefire. They've brought it to the European table. They've got some movement on it. Probably not where we want to be. We want to see a stronger message come out from the European Union. But I just think we've been an outlier. We try to push this message of trying to get a ceasefire on both sides because. In our, in our lifetime, this is probably one of the most tragic scenes we'll ever see. And it's only going to get worse. Peter is right. Like, what's going to happen in the next few weeks when you don't have food and water is uncomprehensible, to say the very least.
3: Mm-hmm. Jennifer, uh, I suppose larger land incursions that we may now see on the ground in Gaza um, from Israel, um, will that change, do you think, the Irish position? Um, I, I suppose on the Social Democrat side, would you believe that? you know, that the government should be to a stronger line on this or take a different approach in this regard.
8: Yeah, look, I mean, it was really important that we came out very strongly and the government did condemning Hamas um, and what happened. Uh, But the Social Democrats believe that it is equally important to condemn the uh, actions of Israel when it comes to the collective punishment of the entire uh, populace of civilians, women and children, um, and the mass displacement of people within Gaza. So that that was something that was you know that we believe that, that the government should be very strong on and actually condemned Hamas. What we've seen, or sorry, uh, uh, the Israelis. What we've seen is a sort of tiptoeing around um, the Israelis in relation to, you know, what constitutes a war crime. A war crime is a war crime is a war crime. It doesn't matter who's doing it. Um, you know, there, there are rules to war and Israeli actions to date have not stayed within those rules.
3: And yet we consistently heard, and we heard last night from... Um the Israeli ambassador that they're
8: not doing anything illegal and there are no war crimes taking place? Stopping food, stopping fuel, stopping medicine, stopping aid to a civilian population is a war crime. Mm. Uh, that is just the facts of it. it it's not up for debate. Um, so I think, you know, it, it would be, I think Ireland, sh- you know, could and should take a much stronger position in this. I do welcome the fact that they were calling for a ceasefire uh, at the European Council. That was really important. But again, what we're seeing is a very soft language that really will embolden Israel. I think think, in, in the approach that they've taken. Uh,
3: Peter, just when, um, and we were talking about, you know, what what Israel is saying
8: and then around, uh,
3: uh, you know, they're, they're not going to provide fuel because Hamas has stockpiles of fuel in the region. You know, what what's the feeling around that accusation and that claim um, for, for aid workers and frontline workers on the ground? Do they believe that Hamas could be doing more, that they may have fuel, that there's any way of handing that fuel over in order for aid agencies to distribute it?
5: Well, the United Nations works agency, UNRWA, which has uh, overall control uh, of fuel in terms of the uh, humanitarian response, uh, works with other UN agencies in terms of the distribution of fuel. We're very clear this morning. They say they don't have it. Uh, They're running out of it. Uh, By this evening, they may well be out of it. Uh, And they need it. And the only... Uh, way they see of getting fuel in, and they were very clear about this this morning, is that they they have large stockpiles on the Egyptian side of the Rafa crossing, and that is why it's an absolute humanitarian, Mm -hmm. and I would say, moral imperative now, that Uh, that crossing is open in a sustained uh, and stable way to, at the very least, allow fuel in to fuel generators uh, to keep hospitals working. That's the very, very least. We need a lot more, but that's the very least uh, that we need, and that's what UNRWA is saying uh, this morning. Uh, uh, Antonika, to bring you in, you know, behind the scenes,
3: I suppose, of, of, you know, everything that Benjamin Netanyahu is saying, everything that is happening um, in the air and on the ground... um, when we talk about the humanitarian situation, the dire humanitarian situation and, and the deep need for aid in, in, in the area, and also about the hostage situation. Are there negotiations and diplomacy there um, that, that may you know, allow for greater aid, that may allow for a move on the hostage situation as well?
6: There are negotiations taking place behind the scenes, but they are by necessary secret. We, we, we learned very little about them before the fact. Um, Interestingly, there's a delegation of Hamas in Moscow uh, at the moment, and Sergei Lavrov was in Tehran uh, yesterday, um, that's something that is on the record. But there's a lot of, uh, you know, behind the scenes, and some, some hostages have been released already, uh, though I noticed that uh, Hamas have said that 50 of them have already died in the bombardment. We'll never know, of course, uh, the real facts, because it's very difficult to get information on the ground. I mean, two dozen journalists have been killed in the last three weeks. Um, there's no safe place uh, in, in, in Gaza right now.
3: Uh, indeed, and actually, talking about the the, the other uh, figure that came to light today was that the um, which I suppose Israelis are keen to say is the Hamas-run health ministry uh, issuing uh, those figures of over seven thousand people having died. But we also know that there are doctors on the ground counting bodies in this regard. Tim, uh, from an international community point of view, um, you know there keeps you know the death toll. I mean, how? how How big an influence does that have on, you know, international calls for restraint?
2: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
7: Look I think the point was made about 3,000 people were lost in Northern Ireland in the troubles and we're well exceeding that at this stage like this is a an issue or a conflict that's beyond belief the amount of people that have been suffering is just frightening at this stage the main issue here is trying to get aid in like we need a ceasefire we need corridors we need to get water we need to get fuel into these people um, it is literally um, very very serious to say the very least how we move forward now is the European Union have agreed a motion probably could be stronger, but we've done our best to make it as strong as we can. What, no, ocean, what would?
3: what would, I mean, when you say like, probably could be stronger, like it's, the, it's the call for a full ceasefire. That's what Ireland is looking I for. And I think we've
7: been looking for that. In fact, we are now clearly looking for that. But at least we got some movement on the ground. Now we need to see that movement actually react with the international community and work with us. And what we really need to see here, as Peter rightly said, fuel, water and those corridors opened. Like the humanitarian crisis here in the next few months could be, or the next few days could be, could be unbelievable.
3: Yeah, interesting how the use of language around this, Jennifer, but also whether that language has impact on a call for pauses versus ceasefire. whether that, you know, really does uh, have an impact at, right now at this stage in the yeah.
8: world. Well, I suppose at the moment we, we don't even really know what pauses means, you know, as I said, is it an hour a day, is it longer? Um, and I suppose the, the, the frustration is that we're nearly three weeks into this and we're still talking about words and semantics, you know, so it, the speed at which Europe has, has come out with, with the statement, I think is, it is disappointing. It should have happened before now. But, you know, like ultimately, um, we're, we're looking at a situation where children are being uh, operated on without anaesthetic, where premature babies in hospital will will probably have their life support uh, switched off. You know, it is an absolutely desperate situation. And, um, and it's really important that that the the uh, globally, that that uh, internationally, that we work very quickly to to try move towards a ceasefire, um, so that actually that aid can get into to those people who are really being impacted most absolutely desperately. Uh, Peter, in
3: terms of um, look where this situation is at now, and I know you've just recently returned from Amman, um, and you were actually in Gaza just prior prior to October seventh and before. Uh, all of this um, catastrophe that we're seeing unfolding. Um, do, you have, do you have hope that civilian lives at this point can be saved? Do you have any hope that that call, as I say, for unimpeded access um, to aid will be heeded? Um, and, and, you know, are there international players that would have more influence in ensuring that happens?
5: Uh, do we have hope? If we don't have hope, we have despair. Uh, We have to have hope. Uh, These people have a right to water. They have a right to food. Children have a right to survive. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all those rights are being put in jeopardy now uh, by not having access to the basic necessities of life. So we hope uh, that there will be a sustained humanitarian uh, uh, pause, call it what, uh, what you will, but that needs to happen and it needs to uh, happen now. Otherwise, as I said at the very outset, we are witnessing a terrible humanitarian cont- catastrophe unfolding before our very eyes.
3: OK, thank you, Peter, and my thanks to to Dunica. Coming up next, Ireland's dirty water as the EPA warns of untreated raw sewage in some of our systems. Do stay with us. Welcome back. The Environmental Protection Agency says the equivalent of three Olympic sized swimming pools of raw sewage are flowing into the sea and waterways every single day. It's calling on Ishka Aaron to invest in new wastewater infrastructure. After finding that nearly half of Ireland's wastewater discharges do not meet EU standards, the EPA's report on urban wastewater found that 26 towns were discharging raw sewage daily, while the water treatment in 15 large towns and cities did not meet EU standards. Well, Senator Tim Lombard from Fine Gael And Social Democrats' TD Jennifer Whitmore are still with me. I'm also joined by Alice Chambers, an investigative journalist with Noteworthy.ie. And on Skype, we're joined by Morris Walsh from the Kilbehany Sewage Action Group in County Limerick. Um, To come to you first on this, Alice, because you have been investigating this matter, uh, and not a pleasant matter at all, um, in depth. Uh, that will come, I think, as a huge, certainly to me, as a huge shock about the level of raw sewage that is going directly into our waterways
9: and the sea um, every single day. But this is not a new problem. No, it is, it is shocking. And unfortunately, it's not a new problem. This should have been fixed uh, in the 90s to the early 2000s. Uh, and yet we're still, we're, we're still seeing this problem. Uh, and, yeah, our investigation looked at its impact on bathing water quality And there's a number of reasons why bathing water uh, will have pollution in it, but the number one reason for the last two years and in the top top three for the last five years is urban wastewater discharge, which is flowing into our, our bathing waters around Ireland. Right. Okay. well,
3: I want to bring in Morris now because, Morris, on that point, there is a list of 26 towns um, in question in which the raw sewage of 54,000 residents or something is heading straight into waterways. Uh, You're you're not on that list, but you say, you know, you should be on the list because you're uh, ignored and your community is really suffering as a result.
10: Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, obviously that report is, is you may as well just tear it up and put it in the back of the bin because it's it's not a correct, um, what I was given out today. Uh, 26 counties, yeah. Your statistics there, three Olympics are 54,000 people if they like go to their local river tomorrow and, and use it because that's what's happening. In the village of Kelbeheni or better known as the forgotten village of, of in County Limerick. We've a situation down here where we've got um, 13 houses, a church, a community centre, hairdressers and undertakers and the raw sewerage flows down the middle of the village straight into the River Function which divides the uh, Cork County and the Limerick County. Now, raw sewerage is a problem. We all know we are not don't have to be geniuses to know what raw sewage does. But the problem is then when you've got rodents and rats that comes up that pipe and goes into the people's houses. Park that for one side, we'll put it to one side. What happens and what's it doing to the community? Well, it's like this, we've lost our pub at one of our pubs, our post office, our shop, and several other uh, things in our village, uh, because of the sewage system, Kilbeny. we we're not allowed to build a hen house, not a mind saying a house. What happens when you can't build houses? Well, I'll tell you what happens in a small community of Kilbenny in County Limerick is, number one, we cannot fill a football team. Number two, our our school, that is another issue as well. We're a commute uh, village to Count to Cork, which is 25 minutes to the Jack Lynch Tunnel. And the forgotten village of Kilbenny is sitting there and they don't even have the respect- uh, Sorry, Morris, what's happening the
3: sewage um, in question then? I know, look, it seems like an obvious thing, but look, what, what are you doing with it? What's happening?
10: It goes, uh, well, Well, well we're not, we can't do anything with it. It flows into the river, a function where it's blatant to see that you can see the likes of uh, raw sewage, sentry towels, uh, tampax, the whole lot into the river. Straight in, um, there's nothing, it just goes straight in to the river. And as I say, the sewage is one thing, but what comes up there then, we've got a young family or families living in a village where they have problems where the rats are inside in their toilet bowl in the morning when they get up.
3: That's a horrendous prospect. Um, I want to just, Jennifer, bring you in on this. So we did reach out um, to Ishka Aaron for a spokesperson, but to say that they told us that none was available, but it says that solving this is a priority for the company. Uh, Jennifer, wh- what's actually going on here? Because people will be shocked to hear that the infrastructure is not in place to the, tune, uh, to the detriment of, obviously,
8: you know, villages like Morris's, but right up and down the country. Yeah, I think anyone listening to Morris's story there, it's it's actually stomach-turning listening to that. Um, But unfortunately, this is a problem that's been in place for over 30 years. We, We have not been compliant with EU directives when it comes to water quality for 30 years. And the EPA report today made it very clear that under Ishka Aaron's current... Uh, the speed of of dealing with this, it will be another 20 years before we are fully compliant. So obviously I think successive governments did not invest in the infrastructure that's required. and I think even now, you know, the speed, Ishka, Erin, has, has investment made in it, but the speed of actually deploying that and rolling it out just isn't sufficient. And it's not just in relation to um, new plants, because obviously, you know, we, we do need new plants, um, but it's also in relation to the maintenance um, and the governance of existing plants, because the EPA uh, report today um, identified five plants that um, because of uh, management issues were actually non-compliant with the, the, uh, with the regulations.
3: From your investigations, Alice, is it, a, is it a lack of funding? Is it a lack of money? Is that, is that why we're having these huge
9: Well, when I, when I put the question to Ishgaran, they told me that since they were um, founded in uh, 2014, they've invested a lot of money uh, into, into fixing, fixing the problem um, and that they manage sort of over a thousand different treatment plants and centres and things. And so basically they're doing their best. Um, but I, I, I think it's just, it's a massive problem and the underinvestment shows and uh, a lot more money is, is going to be needed. So Ring's End, for example, is is the, really the big problem. Um, it about just over forty percent of all Ireland's sewage so flows through that, uh, and it's not meeting EU standards. Um, Ishgaren has invested uh, five hundred million euro in, into fixing that. It should be done by two thousand and twenty five. Hopefully, let's see. Um, but it just shows you that you know the the amount of money needed to uh, to fix this problem. Uh, the amount of money and then the amount of time it takes to actually get the problem fixed,
3: Tim. I mean, this is not new and it's every single day if we're talking about three swimming pools worth of raw sewage. Why... Why, why is that the situation
7: if you look at If you look at the budget we're looking at, we look, we're looking at nearly €6 billion of capital scheme put in, or a, scap, a capital investment being put, put in place for Ishka Aaron. So there is significant money being put behind it. So
10: what's happening? I, I do
7: think Jennifer made a very good point about the management. Um, and I'll just quote one. In their actual report, they quoted, quote Max Sherry, Court McShire was a treatment plant that was uh, commissioned in 2019 for 10 million euro. I remember being at many public meetings below there. The late John Young was leading yeah. the campaign. And that 10 million euro now has seemed to be you know, managed uh, um, not appropriately because management issues are listed in their report. So
3: you're so blaming
7: you, Ishka Aaron so you, for, 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 for well, this issue? Well, I'm only, I'm only reading from the EPA report, and it said poor management practices in some plants cause inadequate discharge to the actual estuary. And if you look at that Cote um estuary itself, you've cool main strand, lovely parts of the world. To think that after 10 million euro... 2019, that you have it mentioned in a report that it's the discharge well, in the know, corporate look, is important. I know, and you you
3: say that right, but, the, but that was in a report what 2019.
7: Oh, the report today that we read. Okay, no, yeah. in
3: the report, in, yeah, but the problems that you're talking about down at, at the water plant you've been well aware of. I'm oh just yeah, wondering absolutely. What, why? Like, like why plan. there isn't more oversight or why?
7: And I think you know when you put money behind the why problem, why does the state
3: not step in here?
7: Well, we've put Ishkaer in charge. We've we've funded them. You'd be hoping when you put money in charge of an organisation that what is about going oversight. To make, I think the oversight comes from the actual department that actually fund it. And I think the local government will take some responsibility. But, like, the idea of taking Irish water away from the local authorities and giving them power to actually get this done has kind of failed in one regard because the oversight or the poor management practices is my biggest concern. Like, to me, to spend 10 million euros on a treatment plant and to have it mentioned in a report that's inappropriate and it only commissioned in 2019... Okay. Is that fair,
8: Jennifer? Sense. Look, I think there, there's there's a multiple problems here, and I do think there's an investment problem as well. And the EPA said it will be multi billion uh, euro investment will be required for, for to, to to make um, all all plants uh, compliant. But there there certainly is um, management issues as well. And it was you know in, in the report it was talking about alarm systems not working. Now you know they seem like very, very simple things that, that should be resolved very, very quickly. Um, but it would appear that they were not in a number of plants across the country. So, you know, there, there is there is multiple problems here, but it's really important that Ishgairn gets to grip with it. You know, the, the EPA said that, that they actually need to put out a... Um, a pathway, you know, to have a, a very strategic report. The fact that that's not even in place, I think, is just incredible. And I do also think that, you know, government does need to take this in hand as well, because, you know, what we see an awful lot of time is, is these agencies being set up, and then it's like, well, it's it's no longer government's problem. You know, they fund them, and 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 they uh, there isn't the accountability there. But I think, you know, ultimately, everyone in the country is is um, do, being impacted by this. So I, I think it's important that government comes to come their to hands with it.
7: Community mm-hmm. going to read this report and go absolutely mad because they putting in so much pressure on the agricultural community to become a compliant when it comes to things like nitrates and water quality. They read
10: this report support, now and they go, what in the name of God okay. is happening?
3: Morris, um, you want to come in on that. What do you think what I, you've heard far?
10: Absolutely. And, and he just touched it there. Look, I represent farmers and I'm a chairman of the Irish cream and milk suppliers. And, and this is rubbing the, our noses, our farmers, in their noses in, in it here. Because listen to me, this, the state is causing this problem. And it's the state that will prosecute me or you or farmers if we breach that. That, that problem, if we have a leaking pipe or if, if a farmer goes out in an enclosed period of the slurry spreading, which is here at the moment on the 15th of January. So, this is not good enough that one, everyone's blaming each or other and, and they're saying this and that. Like, there's nobody putting saying that, like, this This is a serious situation. Not today or yesterday, this was caused, let me tell you now, as we said, your reporter said there, going back a long, long time. But I, I'm afraid. That 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 people and farmers especially will, will will lose the cool, and I could be one of them. <laughs> we could end up above in Dublin yet with our vacuum tanks, because uh, this is a problem that's not going to go away, and it should be it should be solved okay. as, as quicker rather sooner rather than later. All thank right,
3: uh, Morris. Thank you for joining us tonight from County Limerick. Uh, my thanks also to Jennifer to Alice. Um, coming up next, though, the clocks go back this weekend, but should they? We debate. Stay with us. Tim Lombard is still here in the studio with me and I'm also joined on Skype by ESRI economist John Fitzgerald because we want to talk about the clocks changing this weekend. We've two very differing views on this and, uh, you know, that's why we have John Fitzgerald with us who, who takes a strong view that, you know, this is fine. This is what we've always done and we should keep up that way. But, Tim, you don't think so. You believe the time for... Daylight savings uh, is over.
7: Ah, yeah. I think this, look, this was proposed back in, in 1916, you know, where there was a First World War happening, so trying to make sure that the factories were more efficient when it came to actual coal, uh, which was the main fuel. Like, we've moved on from this. This is about trying to make sure that we're in a world that's fit for purpose regarding our society. And if we were to stick with this time, what would it mean? It would mean that the negative impact of change in the actual clock and health wouldn't be a, wouldn't be a big issue. Because there's so many people that we know will help, will suffer from issues regarding sleep, changing their body clock, all these other issues. Um, disturbance in the actual, um, the impact on the farming community, how they actually work. Yeah, tell as well. us about
3: that. What is, you know, what what do we see in terms of the change there?
7: I think the change here is that farmers will be working late into the night because it'll be darker. Like you're going to have evenings come in earlier, they'd be trying to finish up for half a six, seven o'clock, they'd be spending the last few hours in natural darkness. And that makes no logical sense. But I actually think there's a big issue here about people getting out exercising. The opportunity for people coming home from work, having the opportunity to go for a walk, go for a run, will be diminished because the issues of getting out into the actual dark is not what they're going to want to do. But like people who live alone in particular, these people are going to be really affected. If it's dark at half past four, half past five o'clock at night or in the day, it doesn't make um, for really good living habits. They want to get out, but they're just not allowed. Uh,
3: John, what do you think about that? You know, we lose that stretch or whatever bit of a stretch we have in the evening at this time of year and suddenly it's all dark and we're not in moving with the times of the rest of Europe on this one.
0: Well, I waited wish- I'd like to see scientific evidence on this Um, with colleagues in the SRI 10 years ago. We looked at the Tommy Bruin Labour TD uh, introduced a bill, um, the Brighter Evenings Bill in uh, 2012. And we looked at he argued that in terms of energy use, it would move the peak and it'll be better. Actually, we found you'd have to actually move to Greenland time to make a difference. We also looked at if you moved continental European time, it just wouldn't make much difference on on energy. One thing that, that there was an experiment for two years in 1968, 69, when um, we adopted, um, I think was it in the summer continental European, or, or the winter. Um, And there was some suggestion that it was dangerous for children walking to school early in the morning, that it was darker. Um, Now, I don't have scientific evidence on that, but I think you'd want to go and look at at the evidence. Um, All right, people have views on this, um, but uh, there is also the issue of what happens in the United Kingdom. Um, And uh, actually, we found that if Northern Ireland changed... uh, to the same time as us, they're actually be slightly more energy savings. But you can imagine what the DUP would say if their time was being changed to match with the Republic of Ireland.
3: Yeah, I was joking earlier about the impact that would have on you know the Good Friday Agreement or you know whatever else. But like it, 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 it's an interesting prospect, isn't it? If we don't cha- if we if we don't change and you know. Britain does and the North does. We're in a different time zone then to yeah. people. At Belfast and, and, and if elsewhere. if
7: you go to Spain, you're in a one time zone. You go to Portugal, you're in a different time zone. And the two, two countries bound to each other work out quite confidently. So I think, you know, we've different currencies with the North. We work well to North on so many different issues. I actually don't think that'll be a big issue. Regarding the actual energy savings, really interesting paper was done by Efa Foley, a professor in Queen's University, last year that proved you could save over four hundred and fifty euros regarding the actual energy savings by moving the actual time. And I also we're,
3: th- we're only talking now by an hour. I mean, like, because John said, what impact does that actually make? Well, if you're, if, if it's you, not like a you know the green the, the Greenland style like, daylight hours, like, like Professor
7: there. Foley would have been through the modelling of this quite significantly, and she like looked at the entire year and the four hundred and fifty. I also think this issue about Road safety has to be looked at. How many people, pedestrians, cyclists, actually are trying to go home in that that early evening when you have dusk, when you have um, darkness? It also needs to be looked at regarding that side.
3: If we tried it before and it didn't work... Uh, now, well, albeit it was in the, uh, in the late 60s, but if we tried it before and it didn't work, why would it work now?
7: I think we tried it before, before I was born. I think the world has moved dramatically in those years. I think we just need to look at how things have changed. And I think the exercise issue, I think young people, young women want to get out, want to have a walk, want to run after work. They don't have the opportunity now. They won't feel safe anyway, to tell you the honest and truth.
3: Right, okay, interesting. to you, I mean, like, uh, Tim's pointing to, the, you know, lifestyle and personal benefits of all of this. You don't buy any of that, John?
0: When I, I, I wait for the evidence, um, but just on, we modelled it on a half hourly basis over a year and found that it didn't make much difference in terms of energy savings. The one thing I would say that in 1969, in the general election, um, my father stood for the first time in Dublin Southeast. And I remember him speaking from the back of a lorry in Sandy. Um, and he held up a 1910 railway guide and said, look, we had different time from Britain in, in, 19, in 1910. We were 25 minutes and 21 seconds different. Why can't we be different today? And he was making precisely this argument. It doesn't matter what happens to the UK. We should stick with continental European time. So this is an issue which comes back. It was an issue in 1916. It was an issue in the 20s, whether we would follow Britain um the issue in 1969, uh, 2012, yeah. but it comes back
3: now. Yeah, if that's what your father, Garrett Fitzgerald, was saying, is there a bigger political statement at play here? Should we, should we make the change?
0: Um, well, I think he, he was actually um, making a, a joke about himself on that occasion. I, I cannot believe that the electors of Dublin South East elected him a TD on the basis of what he was saying on the time in 1916.
3: All right, OK, but, uh, you know, finally on this one, Tim, uh, look, whether we're for changing or not, I don't know, it's likely to disrupt everyone's bedtime, especially if you have young children over the coming Absolutely. days. Absolutely,
7: like at home, it's going to be chaotic, like the twins are seven, I can only imagine the chaos we're going to have in the next few weeks, but look, for now, we are where we are.
3: I know parents of young children would say, please, can we just leave it as it is? Um, maybe I'm just speaking for myself. <laughs> um, that is it from us. My thanks to Tim, uh, to John, to our panel tonight. That uh, Don't forget to change your clocks this weekend now that we've been talking about it. Our programme is available as podcast. That's it from us. Good night. Take care.